Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Armin Vardanian. Hi, everyone. Nice to join another podcast. Yeah, it's always good to have you. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. I'm sorry if you're hearing me. I'm a little congested. I'm a little sick. So, but we're here. We're here with Andrew Evans. Andrew, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. My name is Andrew Evans. I'm um, a manager at CapTech Consulting, and I'm based out of Richmond, Virginia. Very cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, we brought you on to talk about using SignalR with Angular. Now, SignalR, incidentally, I haven't used it, but I've done a couple of interviews about it. And I know that Adventures in .NET has done a handful of interviews about it. And mostly what I know about it is it's that a, a Microsoft product, and I can't remember what else it does. So you want to give us a little introduction and help people remember what it does and how it's used and all that stuff. I, th I think it was WebSockets, if I'm remembering right. But Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So yeah, SignalR has actually been around for a long time. The yeah. first time that I kind of used it or worked with it was about 10 years ago, I think. Or five, well, no, it's probably more like eight years. But it was like right when it had like first kind of came out of Microsoft and that kind of stuff. The old way to do it was, well, basically what it solves, the problem it solves is alerting. So the whole thing is real-time notifications on maybe like a mobile app or like in the case of the current client that I work on, we're using it for, a, there's like a dashboard that gets alerts. And so the user can keep the dashboard open and they'll, you know, receive real-time alerts. Behind the scenes, what it uses is WebSockets. And then I believe there's like a secondary protocol that it uses as a backup. And basically, it you have like a negotiation where it, it establishes like a connection. And then as long as you stay in that connection, you know, you'll receive whatever propagates to, to the service. And you can actually get a lot more fine-grained and you can have specific people receiving messages. And, you know, there's a lot of customization that you can do. The article that I've written and that we're talking about today is basically using the Azure service. Traditionally, what you would do, and this is what uh, Armin and I were talking about before you got on the call, uh, was basically that traditionally you would host it. Like you would actually have it a hosted server somewhere and you'd have like, a .NET service that kind of like basically is the facade for interacting with it. Now, because of the great things that Azure's come out with, you can directly use their service with like the Azure console. So basically you create like an instance of the service and then they have an NPM package, which is what I talked about in my article, that allows you to uh, interact directly with that service by just passing in a couple of configuration values and then you're at that point, it's kind of like a Jamstack application where you're not really required to 
maintain that back end, but you have basically just your front end code that's consuming the service that is being managed by the cloud. So it's a really nice kind of you know model that you can do now uh, compared to kind of like the traditional pain where if you had it hosted somewhere, you would have to do all of the maintenance on the hosted server. Then you have you know your front end application, obviously. And there's a lot of moving pieces to that, that that this is kind of revolving. So this is something that you can host on your own as well as use on like Azure Cloud, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. I think the common use case uh, until recently was people, I think, only did that. I think the hosting it on Azure, I don't know the how long it's been on Azure, but I believe that's fairly new within like the last couple of years. So how are you connecting this up to Angular then? I mean, do you just kind of do a standard WebSocket connection or... Is there like yeah, a signal so, R library or what are we looking at here? Yeah. So that's what I was talking about a second ago. So the, the there's an NPM package that you basically uh, install in your project. And then when the app starts, like in your like ng on init or whatever, you can you create the handshake between like your front end and then the, the service. And then once the handshake is agreed upon by both parties, um, you get like, I think like a token or something. All that's handled by this package that I'm talking about. But basically, you just have an instance of the package, you start the service, and then they use uh, observables. So you just basically listen for the events that come back. And then you can, there's a, another function that we, you can, you basically, to, to do this like in Azure, you have a function that handles that negotiation. And then you have a, a function that handles sending messages and receiving messages. So what your front end code is doing is it's calling the uh, npm package but then under the covers that's leveraging those two functions you have to to do that you have to set that up in the in the azure console i got gotcha. you and then the rest of it so i would just build a service over that library over those two functions and that yep, way that's I know right. i'm sending back yeah. and forth right Right. And that's, and that's the cool part because like previous to this, you would actually have to have this like running and you'd have to have like a .NET like endpoint basically that you can call and you have to use like their API. And it's a lot harder to do if you host it yourself than it is if you, if you use this cloud service. Gotcha. Armin, do you have a whole lot of experience using WebSockets with your Angular apps? I actually have experience working with SignalR. Oh, uh, SignalR? Oh, nice. Yeah. What have you done with it? So in, uh, in the previous project that we were working on, we had like 50% of the application was running on real time. It had the real time web chat. It had uh, real time notifications. So like around 50% of any action you take, there would be some real time response to that, like send a notification to another user or send a chat message or something, something. So it was, it was very interesting to work it, work with it though. I didn't like the API of the package that Andrew mentioned, though it worked fine, but it had this kind of feeling that this is really, this is a JavaScript package, but it was definitely written by a, Backhanded developer. So they know JavaScript. They know JavaScript well. But they're, they're, it was a backhand developer who wrote this JavaScript package because, it, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, they kind of utilize the builder pattern a lot. And I don't have anything specific against the builder pattern in general. Like when you create a service or something, you add uh, configurations like with connection string, with URL and stuff, and then build the actual service to use. But I don't think it's very suitable for, I mean, purely from the code uh, style, uh, it's not very suitable for JavaScript applications because it makes sense in .NET because you mainly don't have object literals to provide configuration variables. So the builder patterns makes great sense there. But in JavaScript, you can just 
if we have a signal or a service, we can, if it's a service that I would write, it will have just one argument with configuration options as a, an object literal. So I would provide the arguments just run or, and, or call a connect method or something, which it does have, but only after configuring with the builder pattern. Although, of course, what we did was to write a signal or service and wrap all that functionality inside some other methods, which is essentially what is done in Andrew's article. I mean, I, I kind of have flashbacks looking at the signal art service that you have written in, in your article, the example service, because it looks almost exactly the same that we had in our application, which is actually a good thing because it means that it's, it's not it's not one of those obscure things where you can do you can do the same thing like in one hundred different ways. We had some problems with uh, managing these connections. I remember there was a very persistent bug that it had. I I believe there was something that when you logged out of the application and then logged in with another user, you would receive notifications for the previous user. Like you have user A, user B, you're logging with user A, log out, logging with user B, you still receive notifications from for both users. It wasn't a problem with Signal itself. This was a, an interesting bug that arose from how we handled the disconnections. So it's not like a criticism of Signaler, but rather than a use case that you should be careful with handling disconnections because we, we triggered the disconnection event when, uh, when the user logged out because it made sense you're not supposed to receive notifications on when you are logged out but we had also implemented the disconnect logic because some, sometimes you can get disconnected from web sockets like because there was a fluctuation in electricity or i don't know the internet connection got interrupted or something something so you gotta handle the disconnect events but we handled disconnect events essentially uh, in the way of like oh if you got disconnected just reconnect but sometimes you want to disconnect so we didn't handle that and it was uh, it really showed that we have never worked with the real-time like code for so those, those are some things that i guess people working with signalr or any real-time connection should be careful with i think most i think it's, it's very it's a very straightforward technology it's like it's mostly like an http client but just real-time ones. So instead of responses, you kind of get streams of responses and sending messages instead of sending HTTP requests. But the difference is only in the name. In essence, it's like the same. The whole It's simple in, in that sense, but whole other things that you should consider is like what you do when it's disconnected, how you separate groups of users, how do you handle notifications from the same source and stuff like that. Gotcha. Actually, another interesting question that I would like to ask to Andrew is what's your opinion like in comparison between socket IO and SignalR? I guess the go-to real-time connection solution for most of front-end developers or people working with JavaScript was uh-huh. usually socket IO, but of course, sometimes we cannot choose to have that. I guess the question is which one you like more or uh, what are the main differences? Right. So the in the client project that I've worked on, we've predominantly used SignalR instead of Socket. We I use like a lot of the clients that I work with uh, are like Microsoft kind of shops or whatever you want to call it. And the so I don't really have like a huge amount of experience with Socket IO. I remember like some basics about like how to use it, and I I would assume that like the nice part with that is that you can 
do that in JavaScript. Um, and obviously, it's like you said, it's a very popular package. It's very easy to work with. My kind of just thought on it is that most of your work always depends on what's best for your client. And if your client is a Microsoft shop, then I think the Microsoft implementation is better, predominantly because that's where your skills are. That's where your strength of your client is going to be. And then the other thing is that uh, using a hosted version, which I believe is kind of what you were talking about doing, is a lot of work. And if you switch over to using the console or the, I mean, the uh, cloud service that I, that I've mentioned in my article, it does take a lot of the pain away. It, there's still some pain in getting the configuration correct and basically working through that. But being able to leverage uh, something and let basically a cloud provider handle all this for you is, is a huge win. I mean, you don't have to maintain the server yourself you don't have to you know go through all these things so i my my opinion would be that i would rather use signalr but if you're not a microsoft shop and like maybe you have you're using a different cloud provider or maybe you just don't want to use a cloud service and you want to write this on your own i think socket.io is a great alternative and i think you you know that would be a great use case or implementation for that use case sure i also worked with socket.io to be honest really the the main difference is just the API for Socket.io is more JavaScripty, I guess. Although I didn't have any specific problems with any of those two things. Although another interesting thing to consider if we're using real-time connections with an Angular application, and of course the real-time connection is a stream of events, so probably you know where I'm going with this. So have you ever tried implementing solutions with like integrating it with uh, RxJS in a more straightforward thing? Like, so that I mean, in the article, we have a subject that streams events, but maybe in some cases, some more uh, kind of deeper integration with RxJS would work. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I know that the, like you said, in the article, I'm using observables with the subject. And I'm basically listening for those events that come back. And then I'm also using Redux. So I've got basically the, I guess, the action to the effect. But to your greater point, I haven't really gotten to go super big into RxJS with SignalR, mainly because we don't use it at the client that I work on. And then also, most of the stuff that I did with this article, especially, was around this NPM package. Like I, you know, consulted the documentation and then went to a couple other blog posts that I found that kind of showed how to do it so I could learn how to you know do this myself. I believe now Microsoft, I know recently within the last year, has released several packages that try to automate connections to Azure, connections to Microsoft products and that kind of stuff. And I believe uh, I have a good friend that is working right now with a client that's trying to move them to Azure uh, to, you know, to use the hosted service instead of the hosted SignalR setup that we've, we've been, you know, where you manually build the server and all that stuff. And he was telling me that I think this package that I actually referenced in this article is deprecated now because I believe there's newer versions that are out. So I w- my assumption would be just based on my experience with Microsoft development, that the newer versions are probably more friendly. And then you, it might also allow you to use RxJS more because there might be like hooks or something that's in there that, that you can leverage versus kind of like, like you said, you know, the implementation that came from this package, you're right. It is kind of more of like a backend kind of pattern that they're using. But again, I mean, you know, if you're using Angular, Angular already has a lot of things that kind of fit people that maybe have had a little bit more backend experience. So I don't really even then see that that's that big of a problem. 
but I totally understand what you're saying about it not being necessarily truly JavaScripty as yeah. you know other other packages could be. You mentioned you use uh, Redux in your Angular application. Do you use NGRX? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, that's great. Yeah, I just uh, I was just saying Redux because it, it's, it's a, yeah. You know, I basically was, uh, blocks, I guess, would be the better way to say it. But yeah. yeah, you know, I'm a big enthusiast for NGRX. So kind of in my mind, uh, what I was thinking how I would implement like working with Signal R or, or anything uh, real time. I think that if we just, we just, we don't really even kind of need to, well, we can create a small wrapper service around Signal R, right? Expose that subject. Then we can create one small effect. And from that effect, we can use... So basically, when we receive a message from the server, we receive a string uh, that uh, kind of says what the event ha- that happened and some sort of payload, right? Maybe some data, some object or something, or maybe not. So what I was thinking is that we can just create actions that represent server events. And then we can use the, we can write one effect that would uh, subscribe to the subject we created and just uh, dispatch actions with those names, right? We don't even yeah. need to know which action specifically got triggered because it will be dispatched and we can then see it in the Redux DevTools if we need to debug or something, right? So I think that would be a beautiful solution. Like we wouldn't work with, we would never inject that service into a component or or anything. We would just pass all the events onto NGRX and handle our state accordingly. And if we need to dispatch uh, an event to the server, we would also do that with another effect, right? We just dispatch the action. And if it's if it's one of those actions, server actions, we would just send the notification to the server. And for error handling, we can use something like retry and don't dispatch actions because it's not an HTTP call, right? What do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm... I think the problem I had with the package that I've referenced in this article is that I think I tried to do a similar pattern and I had a problem. I mean, it's been a year since I've worked on this, but like, I believe I had a problem with like the state. It was it was something specific to, to basically I had to put it in, I think, the main wrapper component that the app was using because... I had to persist the instance of this uh, service. And I, d- I think that I'm assuming that there's probably a workaround to that to the point where you, you know, you can do it all literally all in NGRX and you can, you can have everything kind of managed by your different actions versus having to do this in the individual components. But again, I mean, I don't, you know, I haven't touched this article in a year and I haven't, and I, I only, I only barely know a little bit about the development because of my good friend that, has asked me a couple of questions about my experience and I hadn't really gotten a chance to, to go into the newer packages. But my assumption would be that with the newer packages, they probably have some kind of mechanism to handle this. And, and you know, there's probably, it probably would be, be easier to, to fit it up into an Angular app now than it was when I wrote this article. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. 
So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Actually, the problem you mentioned, I, I ran into something similar when I needed uh, uh, certain effects to span across the entire application. In our case, I'm working on an, on an application that is not a single page application. It's uh, different Angular web components integrated into an existing application that uh, does not use Angular. So I have lots of projects, each one of them corresponding to some web some web components. So I had the need that, that, for example, I have notifications, uh, like uh, they appear like success notification, error notification. So there is an effect that is handling everything like that. And I need the instance of that effect in all of those projects. So what I did was just create a global effects class and put that logic there. And of course you can inject the, I mean, rather than saying inject, we could provide the same effect for different features, right, in NGRX. So I think you can solve that problem by using a a separate effect for like SignalR, something like notification effects or SignalR effect or something, and then plug it uh, into the root of the uh, NGRX effects module. Then if we have something to handle in the child modules, like lazy loaded modules, then we will already have that instance so we can receive all the actions from above. Actually, it's an interesting topic. I think I will. I was struggling to find the topic to write an article about. I guess I will write something about integrating maybe SignalR or real-time connections with, uh, with NGRX and NGRX effects directly. You don't mind if I uh, reference your article? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and check it, check it out. I'd, I'd be interested to see your article too, if you if you like, you know, share it later on or whatever. Yeah, sure. It's been a long time. I didn't write anything. Yeah. So, was there something in particular that you were trying to accomplish when you wrote this article? You know, are you trying to get more people to use SignalR or just help people recognize yeah. that it's an option? Or yeah, what, what so, are you looking at? So basically, when I wrote the article, uh, I was working on a client project that was using a hosted version of SignalR, so it wasn't using the cloud service and i wanted to learn how to use the cloud service so that we could learn use it on our project and so i just kind of like dove into it and then i was also i just was kind of interested in it i mean i kind of think it's like i've told you like i mean i've I've been playing with it for years and and i just kind of think it's a neat you know service to play with and whatever and so i more or less was just kind of tinkering and but at the same time i was trying to learn for a real thing that i would be working on uh, with a client makes sense so what are you using it for now? Like what what aspects of your Angular app are you using it for and are you using it alongside something like REST or something else or GraphQL as opposed to just kind of doing a straight up vanilla kind of, hey, we're just going to WebSocket all the things. Yeah. So right now we actually, we went through a couple of iterations of like improving like the front and back end of the application I work on right now. And basically we're, we're actually currently not implementing anything. We have the next, one of our next uh, like kind of tech debt items is to either implement this with the service or go back to the way that it had been done originally. But, but yeah, it's kind of funny because because now we're, we're not even using any type of real time thing. Like the, the poor users have to have to refresh, but 
but like the the thing was with even with that case the the end users of the product were kind of familiar with that and they were and they were already kind of doing that which is one of the reasons why we we kind of let our our previous implementation go in favor of saying like okay well if they're not you know this isn't a huge hot item we'll come back to this after we've done some more work and so we're now kind of at the point where we're we're looking at, at bringing that back I'm a little curious too, just what the trade-offs are. I mean, Armin asked you a little bit about the trade-offs between SignalR and Socket.io, but what are the trade-offs between using WebSockets and not using WebSockets? You get some of that real-time activity for sure, but I'm not sure that every app needs it. So I'm trying to figure out where the line is, where you start going. You know, something like SignalR is going to be real nice here. Yeah, of course. So the so I mean, that's kind of the benefit. You know, if you use like a like anytime you use a library or something that somebody else is maintaining um and you just kind of have a plug and play you don't have to deal with all the nitty-gritty of like handling mm-hmm. the socket connections and you know all that kind of stuff so i mean the i would say that that would probably be the trade-off you know would be that if you wanted to do it yourself it would work but you would have to have just like what armin was talking about have to have a way to handle disconnects and you know random behaviors that you know fortunately for the most part i at least my experience with it the the, both the hosted version and and the one that is used in the cloud service, they maintain all of that. So it's like you know, you, it's just kind of a different different way to handle the same problem, I guess. But they you let them you you let the package you're using or or the cloud service like handle a lot of those things, and so your app can kind of just focus more on like business logic and just kind of treat this as almost like a black box. Makes sense. I'm a little curious too, just kind of what you see the future of web sockets and things kind of in the broader internet usage will be because a lot of people are still kind of just working under whatever API stack they're used to. And, you know, they're not, I guess, not really implementing some of these other features of the internet. And I don't know, a lot of people will just keep doing the thing they're doing until they want to change it up. And so what what are going to be the the pressures from yeah, sort of modern app architecture that are going to make people consider a solution like this. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the new web standards, I, I think like you know there there are different there are a lot of different ways to do this. Honestly, at this point, you know, and and so I would just say that SignalR has has been around for a long time. Like I said, I don't imagine it's probably going to go away, but I do think that like if you want to do this kind of behavior with the future of the internet and everything else. I would just leverage whatever works best for you and your client. You know, I mean, if, if you're a Microsoft shop, like I said before, it's probably the, this is probably the solution for you. And, and even, you know, if you're not, you might like kind of the, some of the things you can leverage. So I, I would say that, you know, just kind of the conversation between you and your team and, and the end customer. And then, you know, you kind of can figure it out from there. Actually, one thing uh, when you asked about trade-offs, Charles, one, well, the thing that instantly came to my mind is that we should kind of remember that real-time connections take a real toll on battery life if the applications uh, used often on mobile devices. If you don't have a mobile application, like an Android dedicated app or something, and people use uh, the mobile version on a browser or a progressive web application, and then we should keep in mind that keeping a connection open is is gonna start draining the battery. And if we and we should always have just one connection open if we have like if we use several connections from one device that really does a number on the battery life from my own speaking from my own experience. 
Like I actually noticed that when, when we were developing the application that I mentioned, it had a dedicated mobile app. And they and the mobile team, it was a Java application for mobile Android. So they were spending lots of time to make sure you don't have open connection, any open connection. For example, if you are not in the chat tab, mm-hmm. you don't need that connection. Right. Uh, so you close that whenever the user leaves the chat panel and goes to another page or something. So I guess this some part of the same logic may work for the uh, for a desktop application if we know that it's going to be used on mobile. Also, laptops also have batteries, so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my, I mean, mine usually runs plugged into the wall, but not always. I mean, you travel or whatever, and yeah. Well, the laptop I am on is already in the stage that it's not working without a charger. So, oh, fun! But of, yeah, but of course there are more you yeah. know, younger laptops. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I've I've had that where, you know, I don't really have anything open but the browser, and yep, it's uh, it's losing battery life. It's dying in an hour because it's just got a whole bunch of stuff running. Not necessarily web sockets. It could have been any any number of things, but yeah. So is there anything else that we should know about SignalR? How do you, how do you test your SignalR stuff? Do you just uh, uh, kind of mock out the library or Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's basically kind of like what we do. I mean there there's a there's a couple of different ways to take the service and you can even if you're using something like maybe like Cypress or something like that, you have like a, there's like interceptors that you can use mm-hmm. so like we've done that before. But yeah, there's a there's unfortunately there I there's a lot of ways to do this, so I guess. Uh, but we we basically do exactly what you were saying. Yeah, that makes sense. I would imagine as well that uh, it also depends a little bit at what level you're testing, right? So if you're doing a full on integration level test or something, that you you might have a different approach than if you're doing um, you know just kind of functional testing where you're making sure that everything more or less uh, behaves the way you expect. Right. So if you're doing unit tests or some kind of functional test, but it's not a full-on, here's the whole app kind of test. You might take a little bit different approach to that. All right. Well, if do you have anything else you want to bring up, Armin, on this particular topic? I guess not really. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. And yeah, then we can kind of go from there. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Do you have some picks, Armin? Uh, yeah. Well, I was stuck in quarantine for nine days now, so I had some time to dive into stuff. So I was reading this book called Feeling Good by mm-hmm. renowned psychologist. The David Burns, I guess, uh, was name was Mr. Burns on the cover. So it's uh, so he's one of the founders of the cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Uh, so his book is mainly aimed at treating like depression and anxiety and stuff. But when I uh, dived into it, so in in the past I've struggled with anxiety and something I I went over it, but uh, I still think that it's the sort of the book that would be useful for anyone to read, because obviously in everyday life we meet stressful situations and everything, and it has a really good explanation on how to deal with stressful stuff in life. 
And the the thing that I love about that book and that approach is that it's very, very pragmatic. Nothing like, you know, we need to psychoanalyze you to death or something. It's more like, you know, you should take this ap- approaches and think in this way and maybe train a bit in your uh, recognizing and dealing with your thoughts and everything so that you can have better control over how you react to everything. So I really like that hands-on approach to how to solve the problem instead of all the mystical things that you can find like online. So I would suggest actually, if even if you think you don't have problems with mental health or anything, it's a really interesting book like to read to understand how to live your life better or something. My God, I would really suggest anyone to try to read that. It's it's very easy to read, like it's in a very friendly tone and very practical. So nice, very cool. I'll jump in with a few picks. So for board games, since I always pick a board game, let's see what do I want to pick this week. I need to make a list because I can't remember which ones I've picked and which ones I haven't. I guess I'll pick Flux. So Flux is a card game, not a board game, but same diff. So Flux, you start out with one rule, and that rule is draw a card or play a card and then draw a card. And then what what you wind up doing is you, as you play, you can play rule cards, which change the rules, right? So then it might be play three cards, draw one card. Or you may play a draw draw rule, right? And so then it's play three cards, draw four cards or, you know, whatever. So anyway, so it's it's pretty fun and it'll keep you on your toes for sure. One thing that I have really enjoyed with a lot of the approaches with uh, that particular game is, yeah, you. so what you're trying to do is you're trying to make your setup match up with the, so there's an objective. So you can, you can play objectives and you're trying to match the objective is what you're trying to do. So that's always a, an interesting thing to try and accomplish and anyway uh, i've really really enjoyed playing the game i usually play it with my wife and my kids but they also have pirate flux and so then there's like all the pirate booty and ships and stuff like that and it's a relatively simple game so if you're not into kind of the deep hardcore strategy of board games then you know this is this is one that you might want to just check out because it's a pretty easy low-key game so i'm going to pick it as far as other things go, so I'm starting to set up workshops for uh, top-end devs. So if you're looking for ways to kind of get a little further along in your career, and uh, I'm going to be covering everything from kind of the advanced ways that you can move your career along, like podcasting, all the way down to like uh, how to manage your resume and stuff like that. And we're starting to get a lot of the a lot of the the topics figured out. So. I'm going to put that out there. If you want to be an author, go to topendevs.com slash author, and you can author some of our courses and series. And then I'm also doing the same thing for podcasting. So you can, I'm putting most of this stuff up at podcastplaybook.co. But yeah, if you're not sure if podcasting is the way you want to go, I mean, that's fine. But if you are interested in podcasting, I've been doing it for a really long time. And I have a lot of expertise on how to grow your audience and achieve the kinds of things that you're going to want to achieve with the podcast. So uh, you can go check that out at podcastplaybook.co. Those are my picks. Uh, Andrew, what are your picks? Sure. Yeah. So I recently saw the Dune movie um, that came mm-hmm. out. And so I've been listening to the Dune books on tape. And so that was, uh, they've been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been kind of cool to kind of go back and appreciate the story a little bit more. That's it. The Dune book was my very first peak on yep. the very first 
podcast that I appeared here. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it was. Did you yeah. like the movie? I did. I, I actually like the book a lot better for like obvious reasons, but like the story is very complex and there's a lot to think about and it's just kind of neat because none of the characters are, are I guess what you would consider like perfect. They all have some kind of thing. And so it's just kind of fun to watch them uh, develop, you know, through the story. Yeah. Awesome. The book that I've been listening to lately is called Cytonic. It's by Brandon Sanderson. It's his latest full length novel in the Skyward series. I'm a huge fan of his. He also released like three novellas at the same time that he co-authored with somebody else and they kind of fill in pieces of the story. So those are fun. But yeah, Dune is definitely on my list. It's just the series, the book series that I listen to or read, they they release a new book. And so I feel like I want to go back and, you know, catch up with those first. And so I just haven't gotten around to listening to Dune yet on Audible. So cool. Yeah, the, if you do Audible, it's fun because they each character, they have like, I think like five or 10 different actors that are oh, really. Yeah, and they even have like a little bit of music in between. Like, like there's like points where it's kind of got like the, I guess maybe like a sitar or something playing, like in the, you know, the parts when they're like going through the sand and stuff like that. But oh, um, nice. It's, it's, it makes it a lot of fun because it's like you're almost kind of what, like listening to like a theatrical production mm-hmm. instead of just like somebody just reading. So that makes it, and it's also easy to remember who the characters are because there are so many characters and having a different, actors for each one kind of makes it so you're mentally you can mark that as like that's what that person sounds like and that kind of thing sounds good to me yeah dune is definitely up next on my fiction listening so cool yeah i highly recommend it so all right well if people want to connect with you andrew how do they find you on the internet uh sure so you can uh find me on twitter at andrew evans 0102 or you can find me on, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram and stuff like that. But you could also go to rhythmandbinary.com. That's my uh, personal blog. And I usually write stuff, uh, you know, fairly frequently uh, there. And then I try to cross post over like Medium and places like that as well. All right. Good deal. All right. We'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Thank you for coming. Cool stuff here. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it here. Until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.